0: i'm andrew schwartz and you're listening to the truth of the matter a podcast by csis where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on to get to the truth of the matter about the ongoing war that russia is waging against ukraine we have with us CSIS's andrew lawson andrew thanks for coming back on the podcast Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, just spoke to the United States Congress. We're talking Wednesday morning, March 16th, and he pressed lawmakers for further military assistance and new sanctions in his speech. What did you make of what he had to say? Well, I
1: think he's trying to to do his best to make the case to the American lawmakers that Ukraine needs support from its Western partners to continue fighting Russia and preventing, uh, preventing Russian aggression in Ukraine. It's similar to uh, some statements that he's made in other contexts into leaders of other countries looking for support in closing the skies, basically helping Ukraine prevent Russia from from using its aircraft and, and cruise missiles. To strike against Ukrainian people and civilian populations. And of course, along with that, we saw Zelensky show a video demonstrating the, the catastrophic effects of, of Russia's war in Ukraine. So just trying to ensure that Ukraine still stays within the center of attention for, for lawmakers around the world and framing it in a way that is presenting Ukraine as, as a country that's, that's standing up to an aggressive neighbor and really doing the world a favor and defending the liberal order that currently exists in the world.
0: Zelensky put it in the context of Pearl Harbor and 9-11 and said, you know, we're experiencing 9-11 every day in Ukraine right now.
1: Absolutely. I mean, for, for Ukrainians, this is a nightmare scenario come to life. And I think what Zelensky is trying to do is to, to find a message that resonates among audiences around the world to just convey the catastrophic consequences of Russian aggression, and to underscore that this is happening every single day. I mean, we're seeing new airstrikes, more and more reports of, of civilians dead and wounded, including in some of the cities that are surrounded in places like Mariupol and Kharkiv. They're really staggering figures about the, the number of human lives lost. And so he's, he's looking to ensure that, that his audiences have a, a really visceral understanding of the pain and the loss that, that Ukraine is experiencing
0: right now. Now, of course, there have been pretty staggering losses reported to Russia as well. They've lost more soldiers in these three weeks than the United States lost in all of Iraq and all of Afghanistan over 20 years. So, you know... What more can the United States do, in your view, to really help militarily? I mean, I know Zelensky is calling for a no-fly zone, but short of that, and he even said, if you can't do that, we we really do need more sophisticated weapons to shoot Russia's planes out of the sky. Are they likely to get even that from the United States? And and will that really help? Well, first of all, I'd
1: say that it's hard to estimate the actual number of Russian losses on the battlefield because... I think with any conflict, you, you get a wide disparity between what the defenders are reporting and, and, and what country leading the operation is, is claiming that it has uh, sustained in terms of battlefield injuries and deaths. But of course, the, it's hard to deny the fact that Ukraine is really taking the fight to, to Russia. They're really pushing back hard against the Russian uh, invasion force. They've had success in shooting down planes. They've had success in, in knocking out Russian armor. What Zelensky is looking for when he's closing the skies, sure, a no-fly zone is absolutely something that he's, he's hoping that he can get because it would absolutely it would neutralize Russia's advantage in the air. And it would really change the kind of trend lines that we're seeing in, in the conflict so far. I think the United States and others are, are right to express some degree of reticence in terms of you know, agreeing to this idea because of the escalatory potential here. If we're to actually support the creation of a no-fly zone in Ukraine, that means that we would have to take out Russian air defenses potentially in Russia, that we'd have to be ready to shoot down Russian planes, and that could be perceived by Russia as essentially an act of war against his state by NATO, and it could really lead to a rapid expansion of the conflict. You know, this is why I, I, we've seen some, some mixed messages, including within NATO itself, about what the, what the allies are willing to do, what Ukraine's partners, even outside of the alliance, are, are willing to provide Ukraine to increase its defensive capabilities. And I think now there's a bit of a, a consensus around the provision of anti-aircraft weapons, not necessarily combat aircraft themselves, but service-to-air missile launchers, that could really help turn the tide. And once again, to take away the advantage that Russia has in the air. But it's important not to focus on one specific weapon system. Ukraine has a lot of defensive needs. It needs uh, support with anti-air defenses. It also needs to keep up its capability to, to knock out Russian armor. So it needs additional javelins in laws. Some of the things that have already been provided, we need to make sure that they can still use those systems and potentially take on new capabilities as well.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of talk about the S-300 system going to Ukraine, which is, you know, a more advanced rocket launcher that can fly at a higher altitude. That clearly would help.
1: What we've given Ukraine so far, we being the collective West, has really been mainly a collection of anti-air weapons that operate with a pretty low ceiling. So, you know, that's, the, these are things that would be useful to, to knock out helicopters or to, to shoot down low-flying aircraft. But Ukraine doesn't really have a strong capacity to take down cruise missiles or uh, aircraft that are operating at at a much higher altitude. So something like an S three hundred would make a big difference. But there are also other weapon systems out there that could also provide a similar capability.
0: Andrew, the pictures we're seeing coming out of Ukraine are heartbreaking. We're seeing you know entire families laid out dead on the street. We're seeing civilians targeted. We're seeing apartment buildings you know decimated. These once beautiful Ukrainian cities are, are really turning into something out of the late 1930s in Europe. What are you hearing from the people you talk to on the ground in Ukraine?
1: I think Ukrainians are, are alternating between this sense of disbelief and anger and determination. The fact is Ukrainians have been fighting Russia for eight years. And this is just an expansion of the conflict that's now reaching into areas that were previously thought to be safe. I've talked to friends who are living in Russia and they say that pretty much every night now they're having to run down into a basement or an air raid shelter because the sirens are are going off endlessly. And this isn't just in Kiev. These are friends that I'm Mm -hmm. talking to who are in places like Odessa and even areas much farther west in Ivano-Frankivsk, which is almost a stone's throw from the Romanian border. So I think that the messages that I'm I'm hearing from Ukrainian friends and, and colleagues are ones that are saying that they're tired, uh, but they're determined, and they're looking for ways to help defend their, their country against Russia. A friend of mine who had wanted to join the territorial defense units was was turned down for lack of combat experience, but she responded by joining a volunteer organization to help prepare medical kits uh, and also to help support the local community in, in hosting a large number of internally displaced people. So really, everyone is rolling up their sleeves around the country.
0: On the russian side you know they've experienced poor performance of their military and they've experienced fierce resistance from ukrainian forces how long can the ukrainians hold off the russians in in this way
1: i think you're asking two very important questions here one is what is ukraine's capability to sustain a defense in the long term and the second is how long can russia keep this up if we look at the ukrainians first they have a couple of key advantages First, they have high morale. They see this as an existential fight. If they don't defend their land against the Russians, there will be no more Ukraine. And so that's a highly motivating factor. Second, they're fighting from defensive positions where they have the support from the people. And I think there's a real whole of of society effort to support those who are on the front lines protecting Ukraine from, from the invasion. As the the conflict shifts, you know, we've seen things change where Russia realizes it can no longer achieve a quick victory in Ukraine and is transitioning now to siege warfare. Ukrainians may have a a pretty sharp reduction in their ability to, to kind of keep up the fight as resources in these cordoned off areas start to dwindle. So this is why it's so important for the, the West and for Ukraine's partners around the world to continue providing support and continue providing weapons to make sure that the Ukrainians can, can really keep this fight going. Now, if you look at the Russian side, absolutely things have not gone to plan. There was a, a recent comment by the head of the Russian National Guard who uh, admitted that things were moving much slower than they expected. And these images of Russian equipment abandoned on the battlefield, of of Russian soldiers raiding Ukrainian grocery stores for food and supplies, uh, certainly suggest that they're experiencing some real logistical challenges and potentially also very low morale. So this is something that I think Ukraine will try to exploit and have done so relatively effectively with their information operations. Now, so far, Russia has committed 100% of the forces that had accumulated around Ukraine prior to the start of this conflict. So as this continues, as they sustain more losses, then it will be difficult for them to sustain an invasion that they never thought would take this long to achieve. And so in this regard, the recent news that Russia had reached out to China seeking military assistance essentially trying to acquire more arms and technologies is alarming because if Russia is really able to develop a relationship with the Chinese where whereby Beijing is is providing more material to Russia to help sustain this this fight then that could really be a game changer and Russia may be quite capable of sustaining this conflict for for a long time. And that means that there's going to be even more bloodshed and, unfortunately, the further destruction of of Ukrainian cities, which have already experienced a a high degree of of shelling and and bombardment from from cruise missiles and artillery.
0: Andrew, do you agree with reports that Russia is becoming bogged down? I think it, it depends on the theater.
1: If you look in the south, they're still making some gains. You know, they've been able to secure, according to Russian MOD sources, they've been able to secure all of the Kherson region. And they're still uh, pressing hard in, in Zaporizhia region, which is, you know, these, these are the two regions that are just north of, of the Crimean Peninsula. Around Kiev, it certainly looks that the Russian advance has slowed. But this the big question here is, is, is this just Russia pausing to regroup and start a much more concentrated effort to to seize Kiev, or is this a reflection of uh, Russia's inability to move forward? I I think we don't quite know, but we'll figure that out in the next couple of days. Do we have any indication,
0: Andrew, of what price Russia is really paying right now vis-a-vis the sanctions and, you know, internally what's happening in Russia?
1: The sanctions are certainly starting to bite. If you look on the Russian news, then pretty much all you see is, Reporting about what Western company is leaving Russia now and, and. New problems in terms of Russia paying off its debts and and meeting its obligations. The economy really does look like it's in a tailspin. And so this is going to be probably one of the key sources of instability for the Russian regime in the next couple of years. And it could be a big factor in reducing domestic support for the war. The question, of course, is whether the ordinary Russian who no longer can access his or her bank account or who's seeing their savings disappear as the ruble loses value, will they blame the West or will they blame Putin? And unfortunately, the Russian government controls pretty much all of the broadcast media in the country. And so the Russian people are very much a captive audience and could easily be convinced that the hardship that they're enduring is not a, a consequence of, of Putin's invasion of Ukraine. It's just because the West wants to keep Russia in a box and prevent it from becoming the great power that it should be. And that's the, the frightening bit going forward. No matter how much pressure is applied to Russia, even when citizens feel the pain, will they actually – think that the ultimate cause of those consequences is the the aggressive actions of the Russian state, or will they just see it as a Western conspiracy?
0: Right. So, I mean, it, it really comes down to in Russia for Russians, you know, has Putin broken this social contract with them where they give up political freedoms and civil liberties in exchange for stability and economic opportunity? And at what point do they say, you know, we no longer have stability and economic opportunity. I think he's absolutely broken the social contract. But what you'll
1: see in in Putin's statements is that he's shifting the blame to the West, that it's not his fault that this is happening. He's trying to defend the Russian people as a besieged nation from an aggressive West. And so even though the, the Russian population is now you know losing that degree of of economic and social stability that they were uh, that they were promised under this social contract I think putin what Putin is trying to do is is to just basically ensure that he's not held accountable for that and so what you're seeing on on television in the Russian press in general is a series of messages that are really laying the the blame for Russia's economic pain at the feet of the United States that simply wants to maintain its hegemony in global affairs. And the way that they do that is to try to prop Ukraine up as an anti-Russian project controlled externally and to conduct economic warfare against Russia.
0: And I take it so far, Putin's internal propaganda campaign and disinformation campaign is working with the Russian people so far.
1: It seems to be working, although it's really hard to get a sense of where the truth really lies when the Russian government has so much control over the media, over NGOs that might be working in Russia to support independent uh, media. I mean, if you look at at polls that are conducted just before this conflict started, more than half of Russians said that they were scared of, of a conflict in Ukraine. But, you know, 60% of them also blamed the United States and NATO for the escalation that had been taking place immediately prior to the conflict. There's some different trends that are underlying the uh, social consciousness of Russians and how they really view the latest state of affairs. One of the big indicators that I'm looking out for, though, is how many people are leaving the country. The problem is, if you have a disagreement with the way that the Russian government is, is waging this war, you don't really have a lot of ways to express that. As of the 15th of March, just yesterday, I believe there are 15,000 people who have been detained for taking part in anti-war protests. And within the first two weeks of the war, about 200,000 people left the country, and a lot of them were leaving for political reasons, because they were no longer able to speak freely about what they think about the, the current situation. You've seen essentially a flocking of independent media leaving the country in droves. What's left behind is really just a series of fake news networks that are controlled by the Russian government that are free to to continue broadcasting Russian propaganda. So there's a real inability to report and share objective information that might lead uh, Russians to say, hey, this is a conflict that we're waging against a a fraternal nation. Uh, That's unacceptable. Unfortunately, those messages aren't really being
0: conveyed. Finally, Andrew, I want to ask you, you know, President Biden has said he's going to Europe next week for uh, an extraordinary meeting of NATO. What can we expect from that meeting?
1: Well, I think one of the key things that uh, that's going to be discussed is what will the next round of military assistance be for Ukraine? How do we act together as one to ensure that Ukraine has the capacity to continue fighting? And also, what can be done to bolster the deterrence of NATO forces in the east to prevent Russia from from striking against the Baltics or against Poland, which is interested in helping Ukraine and providing that defensive to Ukraine, but might be putting itself in the position to to endure a Russian counterattack in response for that. So I really see the objectives in Brussels as, as having essentially two main points. One, get on the same page in providing support for Ukraine. I think having the disagreement over whether to combine combat aircraft has made the alliance look a little bit more disjointed than it really is. And then second to to bolster that uh, deterrent capacity. Because of course, countries like Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, they're very concerned that uh, the deterrent that NATO had built over the years is simply no longer going to be sufficient to prevent Russia from uh, acting aggressively to achieve its goals because now we understand that Russia has uh, really little interest in following the, the international norms that it had itself agreed to several years ago. You know, a successor state to the Soviet Union. In the 1990s, Russia, Russia reiterated its commitment to a number of norms and frameworks that were guiding the peaceful relations between states. And now it's just thrown those into the garbage.
0: Thank you so much for helping us get to the truth of the matter, what's going on on the ground in Ukraine and what we can expect going forward. Really appreciate your insight. Thanks, Andrew.
1: If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts, from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women Smart Power, and more.